Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Hebrews 4, focusing in on verses 12 and 13, though 9 through 13 were read a moment ago. Here at Christ the King, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews since September. Today, we come to the end of what I think is the first section of this written sermon. Part one of Hebrews, if you will, is from chapter one, verse one, up to now chapter four, verse 13. This is the section that started, if you remember, with what was called the exordium, that grand statement that began the book about God speaking. It now ends here with yet more exalted lines about God's speech and about our accountability to what God has spoken. The speech of God could be said to characterize all of this first section of Hebrews. One way you could summarize it would be to say two things. One, God has spoken. Two, we're accountable for how we respond to that speech. God has spoken, first of all, and we're accountable for how we respond, secondly. Now Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, that cap off this section of, this, of the written sermon, our famous books, excuse me, famous verses in the Bible. But that means that like many famous verses in the Bible, we tend not to read them carefully in their actual setting. So what I propose to do this morning is first to consider again briefly the context of these verses and then to zoom in and look more closely at their content. But by, by providing the context first, the content may come a bit to life in a way that it hasn't for you in other times. So that the context, let's do context first of verses 12 and 13 here of Hebrews 4. It's where we have been now for two weeks. Since chapter 3 and verse 7, if you have the text to glance back at, we've been considering the story of the Moses-led wilderness generation and their tragic refusal to heed God's message. The wilderness generation, you remember, is the generation of the people of Israel whom God took out of Egypt. They initially expressed belief on the shores of the Red Sea, but by the time they come to the border of the promised land, they refused to even consider entering it, to even hear from those who urged them to do so. Instead, they wanted to return to Egypt. That was Numbers 14, and we've looked at that over the last two weeks. You also know that as the pastor then is reflecting on that generation with respect to the hearers of this written sermon, it's been the refrain of Psalm 95 verse 7, first that appeared there in chapter 3 of Hebrews verse 7, Psalm 95 verse 7 that's been echoing and re-echoing. Today, if you hear his voice, David says, do not harden your hearts. Don't do today as they did. They had hardened their hearts in their grumbling and in their testing of the Lord through these various circumstances in which they found themselves in the wilderness so that in the end, as a result, we've seen it clearly, they fell. 
they came to not believe in the Lord. So they could not enter his rest. And if you were here last week, you may recall a little bit about why that was the case. We said it was because that generation both heard and did not hear at the same time. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 2, the pastor says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is, those who really listened, if you remember last week. Those who had the hearing of faith. So that we ended last week in verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the pastor exhorts, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So verse 11 was a plea to be earnest, to be careful, so that you don't throw away the offer of God's rest like the wilderness generation had done. And before we move further into our text, let me just make again an observation about this. The disobedience in verse 11 that we're talking about, I hope this is clear, is the disobedience of unbelief. We're talking here about not obeying God's message, not entering the land when God had promised that land to you. Disobedience is simply what unbelief looks like, and the disobedience of unbelief is what characterized Israel in the wilderness. That's what the pastor is saying. You would have seen this parallel if you've been reading really closely. You can see it quickly now. The very last verse of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 19 says, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then you compare that to chapter 4, verse 6. The pastor says, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. It's unbelief in chapter 3, verse 19. It's disobedience in chapter 4, verse 6. Both describe the same reality, which is that they didn't really hear. They didn't have faith. They didn't obey the Lord. Let us therefore strive, the pastor writes, or in other words, let us be diligent to hear the word, to believe it, to trust the good news, to embrace it, to hold to it, to walk in the light of what it promises, to obey the Lord. So now, it's the connection between verses 11 and 12 that's critical. Because verse 12 begins with the word for. Which means that as I read it, verse 12 is giving us a reason or a support or a ground for the call to diligence in verse 11. So verse 11 says, be sure that you know and trust the word of God. The good news that Israel failed to trust. The forgiveness of their sins, the promises of entering God's rest. We talked about that last week. Then verse 12 says, for, here's one reason to do that. One reason you can strive to enter that rest is because, for, the word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and, and so on. 
In other words, what I'm arguing is that the whole point of saying that the word of God is all the things that verse 12 says it is, is to support the exhortation to strive to enter the rest of God. Verse 12 explains how it is that we can do what verse 11 exhorts us to do. Now, I don't expect that to make obvious sense right away, but at least you understand the logic of it, what I'm trying to show you as we now walk through verse 12. Be diligent, verse 11 says, because, verse 12 says, the word of God is, and then he tells us about that word. <laughs> so that's a little on the context. The key now is to consider the content of verses 12 and 13, I think, in light of that context. To do that, I'm suggesting four headings for our discussion of the word of God. And they're just taken right out of the text. The word of God is number one, living. Number two, piercing. Number three, discerning. And number four, exposing. Living, piercing, discerning, and exposing. Let's just read verse 12 again now. The pastor says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, before we start into those four categories of describing the Word of God, it does occur to me that I need to say something about that phrase, the Word of God. Let's at least make sure we're on the same page regarding what the pastor writing Hebrews seems to mean by the Word of God. As one author points out that I read this week, it's probably a little too easy for us today to think that by the word of God, the New Testament author here simply means the Bible, because you, of course, realize that the Bible didn't exist in the full form that we know it today at the time when Hebrews was written. At least the New Testament part didn't yet. And we don't know, and I don't know how we would know, I don't know of anybody suggesting that we know, what, if any, other books of the New Testament that the pastor writing Hebrews knew about or had access to or, or any of that. So we probably should begin by simply saying the word of God here would have meant the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish Bible. But not just that, actually, because from the very beginning of Hebrews, we've seen that the God who spoke in the Old Testament has now spoken his final word in the Son. That's where this whole section of Hebrews began in verse 1 of chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The whole point of chapter 1 was to stress the excellency, the finality of that revelation in the Son, the one who's the heir of all things, the creator and destination of all things. Not because that revelation is disconnected from what God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, not at all. Rather, because it is the fulfillment or realization of that old speech, if you will. And we see how that works over and over again and how the pastor quotes from these Old Testament texts all through these first four chapters of Hebrews. 
But to see this played out in a slightly different way, you might recall if you look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the pastor saying that it's urgent, in fact, that God's people not neglect his speech. Only it's clear there that speech doesn't mean only the Old Testament. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Then verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So I just want you to get the sense that when the pastor writing Hebrews says the word of God, he has in mind, yes, the ancient scriptures, but those ancient scriptures, as they all came true in Jesus, the old speech now caught up in the sun, if you will. In other words, the word of God is leading us to the sun, <laughs> to the son of God, whom the pastor has now said a lot about in, in the first few chapters of Hebrews. The word of God here includes the Old Testament scriptures, but isn't limited to them. Rather, given how Hebrews has presented these citations from the Old Testament, if you've been reading it carefully, it says that God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit says now and quotes an Old Testament text. We've had all three members of the Trinity working in that way in just the first three chapters of Hebrews. We understand then that the Word of God means, yes, these old scriptures, if you will, but understood today, now, as the utterance of God himself. Spoken, in fact, immediately to us, the hearers of this sermon through the pastor who is writing it, using the Old Testament scriptures to primarily declare a message about the Son. And I'm not, of course, at all denying that the remainder of the Old Testament becomes the word of God as that process works its way out. I'm just saying at this exact juncture, this is the power of what the pastor is writing, the word of God. So he says four things about that word of God that ultimately, spoken by the prophets to our fathers, that now leads us to the Son. How does this work? Number one, it is that this word of God is living. For the word of God is living and active, the ESV says. In fact, in the Greek, the word living is the first and the emphatic word in that Greek sentence. Because the point is that like God himself, whom chapter 3 verse 12 describes as the living God, his word is living and thus active. You see, these are connected concepts, living and active, living and therefore active, which is to say that it is absolutely effective in all that it does because its power comes from the God who speaks it. So here's one commentator saying, quote, as the word of the living God, it cannot fail itself to be living. And as God is the God who acts with power, his word cannot fail to be active and powerful. Its effectiveness derives from its source, which is God himself, and from its purpose, which is the will of God. Neither the God nor his will is ever subject to frustration and defeat. This is the word of God, 
Of course, God created the world by his word. He sustains the world by his word. He is redeeming the world and regenerating us, as we'll see, by his word. It is the word once spoken in the prophets, now spoken by and in and about the incarnate and exalted Son of God. It is a word from God that continues to address the people of God. That's what I'm trying to get, get across, even through the pastor's sermon here. I'll just give you a couple other references that have this word of God as living and active idea or effective. You might want to jot them down or look at them later. Acts chapter 7. Stephen is preaching in Acts chapter 7. In fact, he's talking about Moses. So the context is pretty similar. I'll start in verse 35 of Acts chapter 7. Stephen says, This Moses, whom they rejected, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Here's Acts 7 verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, Moses, he received living oracles to give to us. Ooh, that's interesting. Also Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 23 to 25, famous text. You have been born again, Peter writes, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Concerning the effectiveness or the activeness of the word, well known is the language of Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, says the Lord. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God, the pastor is reminding us, is alive and effectual. It does what it promises to do. It does what the Lord intends it to do which is encouraging if you're trying to live out verse 11 of Hebrews 4, you see. That's the point. Because as you strive to enter that rest, you do so with the empowerment of the living and active word of God, the pastors say. But then the pastor becomes a bit more specific in bringing us to the second thing about the Word of God, which is that it is piercing, sharper than any two-edged sword, the pastor says, this active and living thing. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Now, here's where, quoting this verse, you just can see it moving in lots of different directions in different contexts, but it's my view is that whatever meaning or nuance you want to give to the word of God being described as sharper than any two-edged sword, the meaning or nuance you want to give that has to be, I think, related to the following phrase. It's sharper than any two-edged sword because of the work it has to do, the unique work it has to do. It pierces. The point there seems to be that the word of God is so sharp that it can, in fact, divide the indivisible 
if you will. It is more powerful and penetrating than the keenest instrument devised by man. It can penetrate to the innermost depth of our being. That's the point. The pastor here is not trying to offer a psychological or anatomical analysis of the human constitution. The point is not to ask, well, what's the difference between the soul and the spirit? No, the language is meant to describe the penetration of God's word to the innermost depth of personality where you can't even separate these concepts as far as we understand it. So I'll quote once more from the same commentator I did earlier. The mention of soul and spirit and joints and marrow serves to convey the notion of the extreme power and penetration of the word of God to the very core of man's being, the whole of man's nature, both bodily and spiritual, is involved in the encounter with that piercing word. For the ancients, the marrow, deep inside the bones, served metaphorically for that which was most intimate in the body of a person. And I dwell on all of this to say all that because I know that the word of God is called a sword, or it's translated as being a sword elsewhere in the scriptures. But here, at least I think the intention may be more along the lines of something like, it's like a knife. In fact, I read an article this week that suggested that the, the word that's used here, translated sword, is in other literature, other contexts, frequently used for a knife and, in fact, at times, even used for a surgeon's knife. Now, I can't tell you that it's wrong to translate it sword, but I just think you need to think through what, 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 what do you conjure up when you start to think about this. I'm not sure I can be dogmatic on this point, but I do think this is a possibility, and it's one that seems to line up well with the next point. But... Reflect for just another moment here. How does this, the way I'm presenting this, how does this support verse 11? Can you see how the piercing quality of the words supports our striving? Well, I think because it's saying, the pastor's saying, God's word can cut through anything. Bring conviction in your life, Christian, you see. When God wills it, his word will pierce anyone, including you. And the true hearer, in fact, invites the divine surgeon to do that gracious cutting. So number two is piercing, but then number three is related to that because the word of God is discerning. After he's now made his hearers see and, and almost viscerally feel Right, the precise, sharp, penetrating power of God's word. The pastor tells them what the penetrating power is. God's word penetrates and divides by discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here again, the point is not to ask me what is the difference between thoughts and intentions. No, thoughts and intentions is just a comprehensive expression that's describing all that's going on inside the complexity of the human heart. You can't untangle it. I probably don't need to say this, but of course, when I say heart here, I'm not referring to the anatomical organ, the heart pumping blood. Constantly in the scriptures, 
the heart, you know this, is the seat of human personality. It's the fount of our life in all of its aspects, spiritual, intellectual, moral, emotional. It's the radical center of selfhood, human selfhood. That's where the word of God does its work, brothers and sisters. Which is why the effects it can produce are radical and critical in our lives. Look it. You need this to happen, Christian. Do you see? This is key. The language is suggesting that it's only God's word that can pierce through to this realm of the heart. And when it does so, it does so in a, in a way that's dynamic. It exposes what's in your heart. You are then given the opportunity to act upon that assessment. It reminds me, though, I can't say that the wording is precisely the same. I didn't think about it until just now. But that sermon in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches and he goes through all those Old Testament scriptures and explains all that's applied to them, what does it say at the end of that? They were caught to the heart. Right? Same, I don't know for sure if it's the same word. I didn't think about it until this very moment. But it's the same language. At least the same concept. Only God's word can pierce through to the realm of the heart. And when it does so, it does it dynamically. I'm saying to you, that's your only hope. That there is something sharp enough and powerful enough to penetrate and to discern our thoughts and intentions, right? That's what Hebrews 4 verse 12 is about, I'm now convinced. That the word of God is our only hope. That the good news of God's promises and the warnings of God's judgment, his word, these things are sharp enough, living enough, active enough to penetrate to the bottom of my sinful heart. We're talking here about what Paul calls the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6 verse 17, only only when the Spirit pierces to these depths will we know what's in our hearts. And here's the thing. Here's the point I'm trying to get across. I don't think this ever happened for the wilderness generation. Think about this. That's how I read this. I don't think what the pastor is describing as the basis for our striving ever took place in the vast majority of the wilderness generation. There were some, Caleb, Joshua, others who really heard. And in talking that way, I'm here intentionally beginning to foreshadow a discussion that's coming in Hebrews about the new covenant, about what the new covenant means as in terms of our hearts. <laughs> But you see, why didn't the wilderness generation really hear the good news? Why didn't it benefit them? Why were they not united by faith with those who really listened? Why, why does the pastor seem to think that we will? I think it's because their hearts were hard and ours aren't. Members of the new covenant. <laughs> the spirit of God didn't do this surgical work on them. Chapter 3, verse 7, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. What does the prophecy in Jeremiah say? In the new covenant, they will not have to turn to one another and say, Know the Lord, know the Lord, for they will all know me. 
Brothers and sisters, if we want to understand ourselves, be able to strive to enter God's rest, we must fill our souls with God's word. The discernment, the self-knowledge that comes from the word of God is critical to our persevering faith. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, James 1, verse 22, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, which in Hebrews, the language is, that means you're not a real hearer of the word, if you're not a doer, right? If you're not that, then you're like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, James says, just surface stuff. That's the wilderness generation, I think. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He or she will be blessed in their doing. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, it will penetrate deeper than any deception of sin has ever gotten a hold of my heart. Right? That's... That's the good news of this text. That's the key. So make sure you understand that I think verse 12 is positively supporting the exhortation in verse 11. I think the pastor is saying, you can do. You can do what I'm telling you to do in verse 11 because of the reality of verse 12 in your life. I think that's what the pastor is assuming of his hearers, assuming of us. And so what I would say then is that if verse 12 is the positive support of, of verse 11, then verse 13 goes on to be the negative support, if you will, of, of verse 11. Here's the fourth thing. The word of God is exposing. Because if everything we've just said about the word in verse 12 is true of us, then we've been given, you see, we've been given the grace to see what God already sees of us. And what God already sees of, of us and all people, that's what verse 13 is talking about. But you see, this is, this is separate. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word then accurately and penetratingly exposes what's in our hearts because the God who speaks his word already knows what's there. You see, there's no escape from this knowledge. Read Psalm 139 this week. In fact, we shouldn't want to escape this knowledge. Although the language is certainly challenging, it says no creature is hidden, all are naked and exposed. The word that sounds like a, you know, exposed there, actually that's a very hard word to translate. It comes from a Greek word that is, is derived from the Greek word for throat, it was sometimes used of a wrestler taking his opponent by the throat and overthrowing him. I mean, these are pretty strong images here. Whether or not that's the exact nuance that's intended, the point isn't up for debate. The pastor wants his hearers to realize that they are helpless and defenseless before the eyes of God. It's inescapable. It's the God to whom we must give account in the end, the God who knows us perfectly and intimately, so that, if I'm reading it right, the only question is, has the word of God done its verse 12 work in you? That's your only hope. Listen to how one author puts it. 
One's knowledge even of her own self is faulty and inadequate. Wisdom begins in the recognition of this fact and in the prayer that God therefore will search her and know her and reveal to her the true depths of her depravity and also the wonder of divine grace. It is against the background of human guilt and powerlessness that the grace of God, which in Christ brings forgiveness and victory, is most particularly displayed. Dear friends, my contention is that we only really grasp the point of Hebrews 12 and 13 when we in fact ask God to do by his word what these verses say. Bring your living, active word to bear in our lives. Pierce us. Please. Discern every movement of our heart. Make us aware of our exposure that we might come to trust fully in our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, which is now the subject, if you look one verse down, of the whole next section of Hebrews. Now, I just want to conclude with two, two basic thoughts that move towards application. None of it will be surprising. First basic thought, church needs to be a place of radical openness to the word. In our worship, in our reverence, in our preaching, in our praying, in our singing. This is precisely why I'm an Anglican, because in the historic prayer book tradition, we have a liturgy that gets this dead on. <laughs> Just listen to these collects that are prayed every week. Really pray them. And you're asking the Lord to do what verse 12 is saying. <clears throat> so I hope that you approach not just the collect, but, but all the aspects of ours, what we say, what we sing each week with this anticipation of a radical openness to the, to the word of God. So that's for church worship. Second thing I want to just make a comment about is that, of course, then to come to grips with this God who speaks in this way and, and that we want to speak in this way requires that, unlike the wilderness generation, we live consistently open to the hearing and practice of his word in our lives. That kind of openness is the antithesis of a hardened heart, you see? The living and active word reaches to the depth of our existence. It lays bare who we really are before God. Not because God needs our interaction with his word for, in order to see, to figure out our innermost thoughts and intentions. No, verse 13 makes that very clear. God knows them all anyway. We need that interaction. We need the confrontation with the word of God. Because it's our confrontation by that word that brings us in touch with the truth of what God sees in us. And I'm just saying the more at home the word of God is among us, the more we will bring about faith and its fruits. So this kind of confrontation by God's living and piercing word has to be a trademark of the true life of faith. It has to be. 
All of which is to say that you and I need to open ourselves day by day, week by week, to the message of the scriptures. Today, do not harden your heart as they did. <coughs> I must be truly hearing the word preached in such a way that I'm opening myself to obedient action. But it's not just as I'm hearing sermons, as important and, and, and critical as that is. It also means I need to commit in some way to reading the Word, studying the Word, privately, in small group settings, preferably both. It means, probably, I'm not good at this, but it means I, I'm more and more convinced we need to take seriously the lost art of the memorization of and meditation on Scripture. I'm ashamed to say I don't know very many things by memory, and I, I want to know more. None of this is, in a sense, comfortable. It's not without costs of various kinds. Hebrews is not an you know, easy, gentle book to deal with. But engagement with the Word in that way is the only thing that will show us what's going on deep inside ourselves and I said it earlier, but let me just suggest, read Psalm 139 this week a few times, because that's, it's, it's saying all the same things as our pastor is saying here. The kind of knowledge that we, know, that we know the Lord has, and in fact, we want the Lord to have of us. Psalm 139. And remember that this Word of God is not only overrunning us or, or piercing our hearts or cutting in. It, it, it is, as, we, as I tried to make the point earlier, as it does that, it is bringing us to the Son. Bringing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who took responsibility for us, who became our pioneer, who sits before us at the right hand of God as our high priest forever. And you see, when we understand that, then we don't hide or mask or excuse or self-justify when we're confronted by the piercing discernment of the Word of God. We don't. Instead, what we do is we stop and we in fact turn towards it. We welcome its examination. We accept its judgments. We hold all the more resolutely as the pastor urges us to do in faith to the promise that it utters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.